Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast. This is another episode of The Kite Runner Takeover. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, scroll back through the feed for like four or five, maybe six episodes by this point. I don't actually know. (laughs) There's a lot of episodes that are all cast creatives from The Kite Runner. Just incredible people. And this one is no different. This episode is with Amir Arison, who you probably know from his hit role on The Blacklist. And he's been performing TV for and TV film for a, a long time. And this is his Broadway debut. And it was actually really fascinating to me how he said that once he knew he was getting the role, he started working on the character long before ever hitting the rehearsal room because, I mean, he's basically, not basically, literally on stage the entire time once the show starts, more or less. And he he just needed to build up his emotional stamina. There, you hear about like physical stamina and even, you know, maintaining your mental health for in one way or another, whatever that means to you. But the emotional stamina of having to go through this intense story eight times a week, he wasn't prepared for. And I love how he he worked on that. Incredible. So connect with me online, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. If you want to help with my TikTok, I need somebody to help me with that. I don't know what I'm doing. And I would love for somebody to kind of uh, run with that a little bit. So let me know. And now everybody, please enjoy this episode with Amir Arison. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's guest is best known for his nine seasons on the hit TV show, The Blacklist. Additional fun TV credits include Law & Order SVU, American Horror Story, Billions, Bull, Homeland, and Girls. He's appeared in almost a dozen off-Broadway productions and is a Mendez Award recipient, which is an award given to those who use their platform to give back to the community. Outside his film career, he is an advocate for mental health, animal rescue, and arts education. Making his Broadway debut as the narrator Amir in The Kite Runner, Amir Arison, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Hello, hello. It's good to be here. Thank you for for coming on what's leading into your, uh, we're recording on a Friday afternoon, leading into your five-show weekend. Four-show weekend? Wait, Friday, two Saturdays. Yeah, four-show. Right. So you Well, actually, actually, we do shows Monday, so you could say five-show. Okay, five show weekend. And we were just discussing right before we started recording that you don't get an alternate. And I want to say, first off, like you're on stage the entire show and it is a long show. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. you're like, you're like, oh yeah, screw you, man. I know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a long show and you don't you don't have an alternate. Of course, everybody's got understudies, but like you were saying. You just you do it. You go for it, and you want to do every show, right? I didn't. Even, I didn't. Even, they didn't even suggest an alternate. I would have. I would have pondered that. I, I, you know, after after two show days, I do. I do sort of hobble home, 
just the whole body, every part of the voice, body, shoulders, neck, back, ankles are just kind of like you get home. But if you get your sleep, uh, sleep um, is very restorative and uh, you get up and you, and you go again. Um, the, the, the surprising thing is I thought it would really sort of sort of sort of drain me sort of soulfully, spiritually, mentally. Um, and it, it, it hasn't, it takes its toll on my body and stuff, but I find it bizarrely energizing. I mean, there's a, a catharsis and there's no time to really think or overthink, you, you know, by just being on stage, you, you just, you have to just go. And it's you and the audience you have to stay present and go with the audience. If something goes strange and then just go right to the next one, there's no time to, to worry or plan or dodge and weave. You just tell the story. And then whenever you feel, if you're feeling a little strange or off, just tell the story. And I'm half the time I'm in the scenes and half the time I'm monologuing. So you just get right back and you, you, you grab the reins and you, you tell the story. And then weirdly it's energizing and, and grounding in many ways. Well, that's what I was going to get into because the narrator, I mean, without giving away too many spoiler, spoilers, if any, right? Like the context, the subject matter, it, it seems like this story of love and friendship and respect. And then it just goes so much deeper than that into this, this level of, of intimacy. Uh, and I guess it's still love and family, but it's like, it, it hurts. It hurts to watch. And I can imagine as the narrator, when you're reliving this night after mm. night, that it hurts to talk about. It hurts like inside your soul. But then at the same time, you just said it's it's regenerative, it's restorative. Well, one of the reasons I think it's regenerative restorative is because there is that redemption at the end and it takes a long time to get there. It's like the last two, two minutes of the play. Um, if that, after sitting there for two and a half hours, um, I think that's uh, part of it. Um, but you can also feel the, I can feel the audience with us. I mean, there's, 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 there's beats and there's pauses and there's slow moments, monologues and the audience is not shift that you hear them with you. Like you can hear a pin drop. You can hear the sniffles. Obviously you hear laughs, but when there's no laughs or sniffles or that you can hear them listening. And that is, that's regenerative, regenerative. Um, you said something about, um, uh, about it sort of being the, the monologues of, is it be hard to say? Cause he said, it's the, the monologues are interesting because they don't follow traditional acting rules. It's like, who's my scene partner? Well, my scene partner is the audience. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you read the book, you don't, there's not an audience. There's, it's a one person, individual, imaginative experience. You're, they're telling you a story. Khalid is telling you a story and you have your mind visualizing it here. The visualization is all taken care of and we're, and it's a collective conversation, if you will. So one of the things that's different is it sort of, sort of functions as a memory play, as, as you were saying, but two thirds of the play, the memory sort of becomes the present because he talks in the beginning. I became who I in, in the winter of 1975, and I got this phone call, and then I went for this walk, and so that's how the play starts. Mm -hmm. And then we get to that phone call. It's almost like the character of Amir has to set everything up that every key moment of my life that you need to know, so that I need to confess it, so you can help me get through this moment where no one else in my life knows the truth. If, if that makes sense. It's like, you guys are privy to something. And when I enter the memories, which are cowardice or, or wicked or shameful or joyous, and then I step out of them, the bravery comes in talking to the audience. Weirdly, talking to the audience is, is cathartic. As mm -hmm. painful as a scene is, I step out and I can ground myself and admit the truth. And as uncomfortable and as as terrible it is, it's, you're, you're telling the truth. And that's the thing he needs to realize, you know, at the end of the play, when he talks to the general, he just says, that's what you tell him. You tell them the truth. And it's almost like he's telling the truth to this, this secret truth to the audience until he as a person can tell the truth in his life. There's a catharsis to, to telling the truth. And, and people walk around sometimes their whole lives with these huge lies or this huge trauma that's happened to them or, or these moments that they're afraid they'll be judged for when they finally do talk about them. And then once they say them, everyone's like, oh yeah, that's happened to me too. And so everyone could start talking about it. I'm not saying that that's in this case, but there are so many yeah. things and, and uh, 
you know, like even coming out stories or whatever the case is of people just finally being able to be comfortable in their own skin and talk about what's happened to them. And then they find that community. They find that, uh, that camaraderie and a brotherhood or a sistership in, in their storytelling. Absolutely. Um, there is, uh, some, there is, um, there is a particular scene was one of the hardest scenes for me to get behind. I see how important and theatrically relevant it is, but it's the scene when it's after the main event of Act One, which you know we'll call it the the, uh, the violation the, mm-hmm. where um, Hassan is completely and utterly violated by the character of Asa, the bullies, and um, and many people know this, and Amir doesn't he sees it, but he doesn't step up and protect it, uh, and that's the thing that haunts him for the rest of his life, and he can't talk about it. He's sitting on this. If he talks about it, he'll feel like he'll be in trouble. It's so shameful. He doesn't want to get him. There's so many aspects of that. And then Hassan just wants to play with him. He doesn't know what's wrong. And Amir can't look at him because he's so crippled with guilt. It's a line Mm -hmm. of the play. And then Hassan sort of confronts him. Do you want to go for a walk? It's nice outside. We can go to the bakers together. And he's like, no, no. And he's avoiding it until Hassan's like, what did I do? Yeah. He takes his personal. You haven't done anything. Just go. And then he's, and then he still comes at him and he goes, what, 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 why don't we play anymore? And Amir has to say, you want to play? Okay, let's play. What would you do if I hit you? What? And then in that scene, he proceeds to try to get, I mean, the character of Amir wants to be beat up. He yeah. like, he needs to be beat up. He needs to be punished. So what do people do when they hate themselves? They project. Mm-hmm they project that hate onto someone else. And it's like the sages say, so he ends up hitting Hassan, multiply calling Hassan a coward for not hitting him back. That was the hardest scene to get behind. And it's different in the book. In the book, he throws pomegranates at him. So it's less violent. It's, 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 It's aggressive, but not violent. So it was very, very hard to kind of figure out a way into that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then there's monologues that come out of it. And that's when just everything unravels for him at the, at the end of Act One. That, to me, was the hardest scene to do. It was so anthema to me. Just It's just so, it's, but it's, um, it's important for the story. Did I, did I read or hear correctly that originally when you were offered the role and didn't want it? <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, w- when I got it, I knew I was going to take it. I, I, I knew that, but I wasn't sure I wanted to audition for it. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. You weren't sure if you wanted to go in. Yeah. If I even wanted to go for it because um, uh, at first I just, I didn't like the character. That's not a reason not to do it. Um, you know, you don't have to like a character. Our job is to sort of humanize them, find the empathy. I had a uh, an acting teacher once in college, rest in peace, Steve Friedman um, said, you play every hero like a villain and every villain like a hero. Mm. Heroes are flawed. And I, uh, but so in, in, in some ways he's a, Villain, he's a, I don't know, villainous, he's an anti-hero. He's, he's a, he's, it's, it's not even he's villainous, he's a coward. It's almost worse. So one of the reasons I was concerned is, I think one of the hardest parts in Shakespeare is Brutus because he's full of indecision. How do you make indecision active on stage? You know, I had that one scene where that indecision, where he projects his, his cowardice and, mm-hmm. and, he, and he beats on somebody. But most of the scenes are not like that. That's a sort of an operatic moment. How do you project indecision, shame, guilt, um, confusion? Those are inherently inactive. And as an actor, you want to make active choices on the stage. So I was like, A, how do I do that? B, it's so hard to stomach for so long, all the way through act two. He doesn't stand up for his wife. He doesn't want to go to Kabul and save the kid until he sort of has to. It's just like coward decision after coward. And just when you think he's like coming around and he's getting his confidence, that coward keeps showing up. And of course, they're like, well, you know, if I'm scared of the role and I don't want to do it, there's, there is, lies in the challenge when I got to, I got to walk into it. It, 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 it. it is Broadway. I was like, okay, it, it is the lead. And his name is Amir. So I was like, I got to try. (laughs) But I almost was like, as much as I wanted to get the part, I would also be relieved if I didn't get the part. (laughs) And then also the demands of the role. I knew I was going to have to utterly change my life and and literally stop everything. Not even during the show, but I had to go away for a month just to prepare. So I've dedicated, you know, between rehearsal, the run, 
and preparation, you know, five to six months of my life where I'm really not doing anything except the show, walking my dog, eating, sleeping, and your podcast. <laughs> well, we, we hear the dog with the squeaky toy in the background. So. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, just, I want to acknowledge that I'm like, it's not, it, if you're listening in your car right now, your, your wheels, your tires are all fine. It's, it's a dog playing with a squeaky toy. It's totally cool. It's um, so funny. My, my dog, she, real quick, she, um, when I practiced my lines, when I was like in rehearsal, practice my lines, she, she would be like in the other room. She'll come barking at me as if something's wrong. And then if I'm like, you know, in a very sad moment, she'll come up and look at me. Are you okay? And look at me. So I was like, oh, no. That's good. That's good. That means I'm I'm telling the truth. She believes me. I was, was going to say, the difference. I, I think like dogs, you know, they can uh, sense when people are going to have seizures and they can understand yeah. all, all these things. They can smell on a level that we as conscious homo sapiens cannot understand, right? So I, I totally was going to go there because uh, it was funny because uh, Carrie Butler, when I interviewed her for Beetlejuice years ago, she was saying that and when it first opened, she was saying that like her psoas, she hurt her psoas, which is like this weird muscle or something on the inside of her back. or I, don't, I forget where it is. But uh-huh. it's because uh, when you have, when you're in fear, whatever, for whatever reason, that, that, uh, that muscle starts do, or whatever it is, like ends up doing weird things. And because she has to be scared in the show over and over again, like her actual fear response in her body started to, to react. Wow. So it, I think to, to your point, I think it goes to, you know, acting is is being. It's not. Uh, you know, you are being that indecisive, cowardice character, that sad character. You're not acting like it. You're being it. And then, good for you. Speaks to the talent that your dog, who unconsciously pulls up, smells pheromones, and can sense things that we as humans can't. Is like, wait, daddy, daddy, daddy's really sad right now. I gotta, I gotta go yeah. get some love. That's really cool. It's, it's incredible. Or like, we'll bark to like. Wait, like, what? Are you, what's going on? Talk to me. Hello, are you okay? But I have to say, this actually reminds me, we had a dog bark in the theater the other day. What? I think it was a service dog. Okay. Uh, and service dogs are trained to be, you know, wonderful, quiet. And it was, you've seen the show? You've yeah. seen the show, yeah, yeah. right? So it was actually at a very major moment. It was um, right when I'm about to pray. Mm-hmm. And, um, and... I get my character is quite vulnerable. So may- maybe I'll take this as a compliment from that dog. You heard a little tiny, <laughs> and it was like, what was that? And then, and then uh, as I get down on my knees and I'm about to do the big prayer, I hear a bigger wolf. Woof. And I just look out and go, it's okay, doggy. <laughs> the, the, audience, okay. the audience lost it. They laughed. And then they gave a big cheer. Like a big applaud and cheer, but I, the reason I, I two things. The reason I, I that I, I, I've been I've done that a few times whenever like a cell phone because you can feel the people get angry or shift or, or, or nervous, and I don't want to. I want to keep the story present, so I want to not fight the audience or have the audience fight that person who made sound, and just kind of keep us. We're all together. There's there's about another time a Siri went off, cell phones went off, and I in the if it's in the right moment, I will address it when I'm in narration and then just bring us all back to the story saying, it's okay. We're all, we all heard it. We're all good. So I said, it's okay, doggy. And they all kind of laugh. Now they're like laughing, but it's a very serious moment. And then I put my hands up and I looked at everyone and said, but now I'm going to pray now. Okay. I'm going to pray. And I went back down, went right back into the scene and they were quiet and stayed with me. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. So it's um, this very unique thing in this play where to have a direct relationship with the audience that you can, one time a, a, you know, a cell phone went off and everyone's shifting and I just said, it's okay. That's, we're, we're, all, we're all in this together. And everybody kind of stops, they clap or they laugh. And then I, I one time said, we all get calls. <laughs> you know, whatever, like it's okay. But I, not too much. I'm not leaving the story. I'm not like, oh, this is a, a comedy show. This is like just just a little bit to say everyone we're okay. That's yeah. cool that you do that because as an audience member, I I mean, I know that you hear it. I know that the cast hears it. And I know that the cast is like, not again. And it makes me as an audience member uncomfortable That's for correct. the cast. So I think if I saw that happen, it, like, like, man, kudos to you for doing that because... It's really- 
it's it, challenging in scenes. When you're in a scene and it's a back and forth and a phone goes off, that that's but what I usually do when that happens is I take a breath and just take a breath and pause and stay in character or I'll, you know, but the other thing I realize I do too is if someone coughs or a phone rings or sneezes on an important line, unconsciously I repeat the line because I know they need to hear it for the story. Wow. So it's like whatever it is, my job as this as well, our jobs as actors, but my job in addition to as the narrator is to make sure we tell this story. And so that is unconsciously in me. And, um, and that's in some ways it makes it, it's not fun when phones go off all the time or there's a bunch of late seating and doors opening when you're telling a a monologue and crying to the audience, but (laughs) that's not fun. But it, but, but in some ways it is fun because it keeps it very live and present and it it changes the energy every night. You seem like you're on a, a whole different level of intensity than in a good way, right? You're, uh, I, I guess, like when you go in for something, you just you, you're going one hundred percent. Like Amir Arison is one hundred percent just not here anymore. I am the character. I am the character that I'm here to 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 portray. And I think maybe, well, I I was going to ask how much of 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 the intensity is carried into your personal life too, because. Mm taking it back to the the Mendez award right again an award given to those who use their platform to give back to the community so you're 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 an, an advocate for mental health and animal rescue and arts education and you're trying to just do good in general and you've been recognized for it and do, is this who you are all the time like when you're on you're on and then you just sleep like switch off, switch off and then now you recoup you said so many nice things right now. So um, very um, flattering and thank you. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's for me to answer who I I know as I get older, I think it's something that was in me when I was younger, but uh, you know, we're, we're, we're technically we're here for a short time. Very. We very don't short. know when our life, our, our corporal life on this earth will end. Um, but we do know it's not forever and it's not very long in the big scheme of things. Um, and it's going to get esoteric, but I sort of figured out that the one thing that transcends time and space is love. That's why you don't stop loving those that have passed that, you know, you don't stop loving even your ancestors. Um, you can be away from a loved one and not have a phone. You, you you know, my family's in another state. I love them right now unconditionally. So I, I try to lead with love. And it starts with the man in the mirror. You got to be kind to yourself. And that, that's something this play has extraordinarily reminded me of, especially as a character who hates himself for, for so much of the play. It wasn't until actually in the callbacks where I found the love inside of him. It's just misplaced love, misdirected love. He has guilt because guilt and remorse and grieving to me is a direct it's the other side of the coin of how much love you have. If you're grieving and you can't stop grieving, that's how much you loved someone. Or if your shame is 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 how much you hate yourself, which is the opposite side of love. I'm getting a little out, out there right now. No, so it's uh, incredible. Back, Please keep going. But back to uh, what you were saying in terms of you know some of the nonprofits and stuff, and some of the causes I have is um when I started on the blacklist. Uh, that was sort of the advent of social media kind of taking off and so forth. And I started getting asked, would you promote my cause or would you, I, would you I, like, I, would you speak at this women's homeless shelter? And, and I did. And, and, and I was like, but I don't, it was really hard to write that speech because I've, I've never been a woman and I've never been homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel that I'm the, the person who should be speaking on this. I did speak on the values of home and where I come from and helping, but uh, it occurred to me, someone was like, I kept getting asked, would you promote this cause? And I realized, oh, someone's like, pick the ones that matter to you that changed your life. And mental health awareness for various reasons, animal rescue, Raina, and um, arts access and education. I mean, I wouldn't become an actor if I didn't have the access. And not everybody has access and education. And then, then doing this play, um, this is not, not planned, but... Uh, you know, that book is being banned from a lot of schools. Mm-hmm. Very important uh, book. And people are afraid of it or afraid to uh, teach it. And that book, besides being an extraordinary exploration of character, has the full history, a full history 
both of Afghanistan and America in the backdrop, a history that most people don't know. This book translated to so many countries. So the book takes place, the story takes place from 1975 to 2001. It's 26 years. And my second last monologue in the play is in 2001. Uh, we arrived home on a warm day in August 2001. And while Sarab was silent, the world changed. One Tuesday morning, the Twin Towers fell, America bombed Afghanistan, and the Taliban scurried away like rats. I'd go into Starbucks, and people would be talking about Mazari, Sharif, Kabul, and all the cities of my childhood. And during all this, Sarab didn't say a word. So it's still about Sarab and the story at mm-hmm. that moment. But I can feel the audience kind of, I feel a little shift. It's like, yes, now you're in the story. That's when most Americans woke up to where, what, who is in Afghanistan. They what is going on in Afghanistan? So we all know about 9-11, and then we all woke up to all the listening to the news. What are the politics? What is the history? And here we get the 26 years before that that not many people know about. And some of it is, there's, we celebrate the beauty, the culture, the family, the love, the irony, the funny, and also the tragedy. Um, and unfortunately, history is, there's a lot of history that's repeating itself uh, right now, mm-hmm. both in Afghanistan and North. So I feel... Um, sort of it's like a higher duty. It's like, it's not even about, I mean, it's awesome, the acting and getting us a part like this and on Broadway. It's absolutely awesome. But it's like not even about that. And that makes it, and that keeps it, keeps it light for me because it's, it's heavier and bigger for something more important. So it, here I'm doing arts access and education, but we're also doing like sort of a razor, like what is theater supposed to do ultimately, you hope, you know what I mean? You, know, you want to be entertained, of course, but you want to create empathy and you want to raise consciousness. Mm-hmm. And if we can do that to topics of Afghanistan, refugee, racism, prejudice, immigration, um, shame, guilt, redemption, if we can sort of bring that up, and then you realize that there's a lot going on in the world and in Afghanistan, and hopefully theater in action. Maybe you go out, there's, we have an insert about different organizations you can support. So it, it feels um, natural and special to be uh, a part of this, even if I'm really tired. <laughs> to bring it full circle. What made you want it, want to get into acting in the first place when you were a kid? Do you remember a moment where you were like, this is what I want to yeah. do? This is my career? I'll give you two moments. I did my first play in the second grade. I had two lines, and they were they came natural. I just kind of said them. I wasn't, wasn't afraid. I don't know what it, what it was. I don't remember them as much as this line I had in the sixth grade. But after I did those two lines, my mom came up to me and just says, you have talent. <laughs> so I joined the drama club. Okay, mom. I wasn't just like the character of Amir. I wasn't great at sports. So I joined the <laughs> drama club and stuck with it. And then I started getting, um, I got a, a drama award in the sixth grade. I got a drama award when I was a senior in high school. Ironically, actually, that drama award in high school was previous, previous winners from my high school Kelsey Grammer and Jane Atkinson, among <laughs> others. But, but that actually, I can't tell you how important that was because seeing my name with them on this high school thing, like this, like his, they were many years before me, was like, oh my God, maybe it's possible. They're professional actors. Maybe I can really do this too. But you asked specifically when I knew it was in the sixth grade, I did a play called My Robot Buddy. And I remember the line, and they say, uh, this kid asked, the, the kid asked me a question. And I remember just thinking, if I go up with my inflection here, I think I'm going to get a laugh. Um, and I did. And then you get that laugh, and it was like a drug. And it became sort of instinctual. And I was like, oh, this is, this is what I do. So I became an actor because I felt like that was something I could be good at. And it was a, you know, a, a thrill and an attention. You make a room laugh. Um, and then that's how I started. It was for the personal. And now it's like totally, now it's like, you want to just, now you just want to be part of good stories. But your parents, your parents at the time, maybe still are, were practicing, both practicing doctors. So having the, I put in air quotes, real job of two physicians in the family. And then your mom, your mom comes to you and says, you have talent. Was there ever anything where they were like, you know, maybe you should get a fallback. Just try this acting for a little bit and then go into doctoring, lawyering, something else. Yes, my dad was always like that. Really? My mom was like, people are like, are you going to be a, an actor? I'd be a kid. You're going to be an actor, a doctor. Are you going to be a doctor like your parents? She would jump in and say, no, he's going to be an actor because that is his passion. <laughs> but my mom, my dad is always like, Amir, your, your, mother, your mother's a hippie. You're, you're, you're smart. <laughs> 
you're a smart kid. You, you, you could do so many things. It's a difficult profession. But I need to say this very clearly. My dad is an incredible support. And there is there was nothing. Both my parents came to opening. There was I, It was a seminal moment in my life to have my dad come to opening of The Kite Runner on Broadway and see me up there. Because wow. I remember all that. I, I never wanted him to. I still, to my, you know, I'm in my early 40s and I don't, I still want my dad to approve and be proud of me. <laughs> and he very much is. We're very connected. And he always, when I decided to be an actor, he said, okay, it's a tough profession. It's your chosen profession. You have to work hard. You have to show up on time. And you have to keep going. So, and he's an example of hard work. I mean, that guy, you know, is still working seven days a week. He doesn't stop. So, um, so I got the sort of the discipline and the reality of, um, from my dad and from my mom, I got the unwavering, um, blind belief, if you will. So that, that combo I thought was, is a, I'm very grateful for that combo. I want to almost call that faith, right? It's, it's your, her faith in your passion and coming from two doctors who are science-based to, to put effort and put, uh, to put stock into faith, I think it, that's, that's probably was really tough for you. Maybe it wasn't really tough. I don't know. Maybe she's like, my boy, he's the best. No matter what he wants to do, he's going to be the best. But that still says a lot about, about who she no, is. She, my mom always says people, because people in school, when they get like a bad grade in something, they feel like they have to fix that. Like, why did you get a C in that? Like, my mom is like, I don't know why teachers and students at schools do that so much. We should lean into the things that they're good at. Yeah. Yeah. Not so it's like fix what maybe they're not excelling in, but lean into the things they're excelling in. It creates confidence, creates other things that you grow from there. So she always, she saw an aptitude for acting and, you know, encouraged me to keep going, encouraged me to do whatever I want. You said something, I just want to quickly jump in on. You said science-based. I also always learned that people don't think of this. People think medicine is science-based. Medicine is actually an art. Go on. um, It required, it required, like, just like acting as a craft, it's an art, but it's a craft. You need to learn the craft. Right? You need to learn the craft of medicine. You need to learn every detail of the body, the history, the, the tools, the, the nuances of uh, medication side of all that stuff. You need to know all that. Of course, I need to know stagecraft. I need to do voice technique. I need to know character intention. I need to know all that. But then your doctor is a collection of instincts and wisdom and experience mixed with bedside manner, uh, there is so much that involves besides just the learning part. You can have the most educated doctor in the world not feel like a good doctor or maybe they don't care or they're, they, they're so routine they can do it. They, or, or you can have a doctor from the University of Nowhere who you know is the Pulitzer Prize winning conscious raising aware. I'm sort of on, on a little bit of a tangent, but that it that it's not just in a laboratory. It is connections with humans and it's trial and error in many cases. We're going to try this. We're going to try radiation. We're going to try chemo. We're going to alter your medication. You're not responding to that. I see you have a genetic history of that. It's an art form of an artist when they're painting, it, they're, they're trying to say something and they're using Picasso in their past and they're using sculpture and they're using the kite runner. It is a collection of things that formulate into what you I have never looked at the medical profession like that before. And now I'm never going to be able to unsee that or unhear that. Because my my brother and his wife are both physicians. My dad is now retired, neurologist, was a physician. And yeah, I always just thought, you're right. You just memorize a couple books and in input and output. There you go. Yeah. And what about what about a, I mean a plastic surgeon is literally an artist. There you a go. Plastic surgeon. It's instincts, it's experience, it's style, it's taste. It's what they like, but they have to know every single thing about medicine before they can become a plastic surgeon. I oh man, oncology. I really think oncologists are artists too, because you know we don't have a cure for cancer. It's all right. about all the new studies, experience, the training, instincts. It's, it's yeah. So, um, wow, I could talk to you about this forever. Bringing it back to to Kite Runner, um, the actual author Khaled Hosseini came to the show the other night. Yeah. Yeah, he surprised us the other night. Right. Maybe. So is that the first time you had met him or was he part of your, your onboarding process when you were getting into the role? I understand he I understood he he knew about the casting. He he had heard about me and you know, the writer, adapter of the play is close to him and Myra Gilsai, our, our cultural consultant, is 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 quite is quite connected to him. 
they've been involved since they first adapted the play. Um, so, uh, but no, that was the first time I met him. Wow. And it was the first time I had spoken to him. And it was, um, it was very special. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. It's weird because I've like been carrying this story and this role and this in my consciousness for the last like five months, six months, I guess, since I got cast. Um, and then all of a sudden there he is. Do you feel like the, the character of Ramir, when you're, when you're portraying this, do you feel like it is Khaled's voice or is it a made up fictional voice that, you know, Khaled put into the universe, right? Because there's a subtle I, difference. Yes, I would, I would. You would have to ask him that clearly, but for me, um, I mean, I can only imagine there's aspects because it, it's such detailed thought. Um, I, I do feel like it's a it's a created character, but that character is a vessel for a lot of his thoughts, both in the macro and in the micro, both internally, but really in the macro, what's going on in Afghanistan, you know, good, bad, the beautiful, the ugly, the challenging, the maybe those that aren't aware of. Um, and I, I, I sort of feel like, um, I talked to him a little about this. There is like, I don't know how he, I don't, I do not know how someone can even write something like that. There is a, it feels like, um, like the grand design. Like when people talk about earth, the human body, like how, there is a poetic grand design to that, that piece. I don't know how you, you go back and keep, I, every night in the play, I keep, you know, cause I know where the play goes, you know, well now. Mm-hmm. I keep hearing some other sort of couplet or some other flip side of a coin or some magical parallel. I keep, I was like, I am literally walking through poetry that, that, it, that fulfills it as story. It fulfills it as character, but it also fulfill, fulfills it as um, context, as empathy, but it also fulfills it as, as some ethereal thing. It's the, the character shuffles around as if he's walking around in a dream. And it is in many, it's his story that the story is happening to him. I do feel like I'm shuffling around in a dream up there, a magical dream. I, I have to go back and see the show again. I will. And with everything that you just said, and then the other cast members have already talked to you, there's just so much, there's so much depth and so much love and redemption. And as you were saying, interconnectivity that I didn't notice the first time I was there. Oh, there's so many parallels. And I can imagine, uh, just real quick, talk about, you know, the first time you were uh, probably in tech, you were there with the lights, you know, uh, cellars on the tabla, and mm -hmm. you've got the, I forget what the, the, the wind instruments are called, like the, the atmosphere yeah, is right. there, the underscoring is there. It's, you said you're like living yeah. poetry, but it's, I was saying you're like watching a movie unfold in real time with actual underscoring. Oh. It's just this oh. beautiful thing coming together all at once. Did you did you have a moment at any of this time during tech or during rehearsals or previews when you were like, holy shit, like, what is this that we created? This is beauty, absolute beauty. Um, no. Um, I, I mean, I, I, the book, the story is, is absolute beauty. I had so much work to do and so limited time that I just was trying to continue to work out every moment, every tech, everything so that I can serve this up. Like it, it really didn't, it wasn't really until opening night that I was like, okay, we just opened a Broadway show. Okay. <laughs> and it looks like it works. <laughs> it looks like I haven't messed this all up. That, that is when I was like, wow. I mean, we're in rehearsal and they're showing the Shreer book. And, oh, wow. That sounds like wind or, oh, wow. Then this, I actually haven't even seen what the projection, I've never seen what the projection looks like. Really? Only when I see B-roll, I was like, that's what that looks like? Because I'm facing out the whole time because the projections are when I'm narrating or I'm in a scene and I'm yeah. facing forward or facing a character. I don't look upstage. Wow. Well, I look upstage a couple of times when Sarab is sitting up there and that's usually just there's overhead lighting there. Yeah. I don't know what the show looks like. Would you, would you ever take a day off and watch it? Like watch your understudy and, and watch the full picture or is that just too weird? I don't know. Uh, I'd probably be... I don't know. That might be strange. I mean, yes, I, 
um, there were a couple of times when I was like talking to the director and we we're just kind of teching a moment. And so, you know, one of the, one of the covers, uh, went on and stood in for me. It was like, not really, they weren't really working out acting or blocking. They're working out some tech stuff. So I was like talking to the director. I was like, Oh, is that what that looks like? I, I kind of like stopped talking. I was just like, Oh, <laughs> wow. So I, I, I would be curious, but I, I you know, I want to, I don't, I don't, I don't plan to miss any shows, but you know, you never know. And if I'm missing a show, I'm not watching it. I'm at home, whatever, resolving, whatever it is I have to be resolving. True. But I don't know. I, I don't, um, I, I guess the answer is yes. I'm curious, but not more. I'm not it, more, in, I'm more interested in doing the show than seeing the show. But of I would course. love to see the show if I could. Oh, it, it is an intense show. And, and the amount of work that goes into it, I mean, how much rehearsal did you have with with Giles, the director, outside of the rest of the cast? Because I, I don't know what the breakdown is of like how much you say versus what all, all the other characters say, but it's probably like you say 50% of the lines, if not more, and then divided between the rest of the cast is the remaining 50%, if that. Uh, I, I actually think it's a little bit more because the monologues, if you consider the monologues half the play, yeah. you, what would you consider the monologues versus the, the play? Well, everything. All spoken word. So... Um, there's something like 40 monologues and then I'm in every scene. So I'm talking in every scene. Yeah. So there was no break, um, from talking. Um, the rehearsal was, look, they've done uh, uh, versions of this production in the West end and on tour, but a different cast, but the, you know, the designs, it wasn't being workshop. They know what worked, the designs, the scoring, there was obviously changes they brought. Solar came in, they have different actors, um, American, there's some tweaks in the rewrites. So it wasn't like a hundred percent, but there was a structure. So they knew in some ways it was comforting because I was like, they know this works. It's not like we're, you know, stepping into some, you know, strange, you know, so, but as a result, the rehearsal is short. Um, it was three weeks and then we had tech. That is nothing for the your, okay. your amount of lines. Correct. When I saw that, I was like, I need to go away for a month and study before we start rehearsal. So I went away and studied uh, to learn. I, I promised myself I wouldn't enter rehearsal without knowing every monologue, knowing my accent as best I can, knowing the Dari, which is the language we speak, uh, mm -hmm. the Afghan dialect of Farsi, um, and as much of the scenes so that I can, you know, and stretch and get my mind and body right and got a vocal coach so I can get as much variables answered before we go in and meeting all the actors and direction and staging and all. And I don't get a, it's not like I can go sit down and watch and write down notes. I didn't even get a chance to take notes in rehearsal. You know, when you have your script and you write down your blocking, I didn't even do that. I had no time. There's a break. And then you're talking to someone. They're like, we're back from break. I was like, I got to pee. You know, you're running <laughs> up, you're like grabbing some water, throwing some chips in your mouth. So I, it was all like learn in body on the go all the time. When I was away studying, I did Zoom with the director a couple of times, the writer, uh, my accent um, person, Hamira, uh, the cultural consultant. So I could, you know, sometimes I'm the right, I'm like, why, why is he saying this? Or what does this mean? Or um, what is the relationship with the audience? So I, I just got as much as I could so that when we're in Rehearsal, I'm not actually asking a bunch of questions. I'm just learning, 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 and trying to sleep so I can keep learning. That's what uh, Patty Lapone actually told me is that like she wants to be off book the first day of of rehearsal because rehearsal is the time to play, not the time to learn. Correct. So you play, you play with Correct. the actors, you discover your the moments. Old, the only thing I, I tell young actors when I teach is um, the only thing in your in your control is how much you prepare. I love that. The only thing in your control um, for auditions too. And then if you know you've prepared as much as you could and you've done your best, there's nothing more you can ask of yourself. No matter what, if you don't get the job, if the show closes early, if people don't like it, you can't control that. But you know, if you can sleep at night, if you know you've prepared and you've done your best. The line in the show, there's a way to be good again. How does that resonate with you? That's a very important line. Mm -hmm. um, um, well, the line takes on a whole new meaning when, he start, when, he when it, it gets revealed the secrets of the play. I mean, no spoilers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess if you're listening to this, you might know the story. There's the, multiple, the multiple book, layers of things that get revealed. Yeah. But when he finds out the sort of the big secret that his father had been keeping after his father's death, that Hassan is not just his, his best friend who, but also his, um, his brother. 
Mm-hmm. Find out. Sorry, spoilers. That we find that out halfway through the second act. Um, and he had been punishing himself all that time for, in many ways, abandoning Hassan and getting Hassan kicked out. But that almost all of that could have been avoided had he known he was his brother. So he's been living with this thing. And all this time, his father took to the grave that that was his brother. So suddenly he had a replay of his whole life and he saw it completely differently. All the interactions and, and what his his role, like his dad never knew what I did and I never knew what my dad did. And it all comes pouring out. So a way to be good again, he always thought it was about him. How to, how to fix my giant mistakes that I've made in cowardice. How do I find a way to be good again? Because again, there's love inside of him. So he, 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 he wants to be good. He just doesn't know how now. And as the lie gets longer and longer, it becomes harder and harder and you get buried deeper and deeper and deeper. And then you get that call and then it, the, the past comes. Oh yeah. But when he finds out a way to be good again is not just about him, but it's about his father. It's actually about legacy. It's about bloodline. It's about history. It's about Afghanistan. Again, like I was saying earlier, it's it's bigger than him. He was about he was turning down the offer to go be good again when it came to himself. But when he found out that it's his dad and it's family, and he has a chance to save someone that he that he that he that he lost, save someone that he had, he had essentially lost in some ways, people could argue it. He was murdered because of his, I'm getting a little weird now with the plot, but he has a chance to do something and he doesn't convince him when it's just for himself. It convinces him when it's for his history. His family. His, his dad, his, his family, family history. And by extension, the, the no one's going to know about that dad or anything. No one's, no one's going to know that this kid was, is my brother. Even when I find that out, I decide to go to Kabul before I even um, have called my wife and told her. I tell her after the fact, after I went and, and got beaten up and tell her. And then I confess everything because I didn't know what to do. Now I'm like, I don't know what to do. Um, I have this kid. and I don't know how to get him home and what, what the next move is. And I, I don't know what to do. So I call her. And then it's after I stood up for everything that the truth starts pouring out of me. And the truth continues to pour out of me and faith and hope. And truth, and it's like once I faced that, all this stuff that was bottled up inside of him that he didn't even understand came pouring out. Hmm. Well, everybody has to go down to see this show. Uh, it is so brilliantly, brilliantly staged, brilliantly acted. You and the rest of the cast are phenomenal. Such a good company. Such a good company. We all love each other. We all we all prop each other up. It's such a special company. It's the most fun I've ever had doing a play. As hard as it is, it's the most special. Well, oh yeah. So I've, I, I've, I firmly believe that like the more traumatic you're going through eight times a week, more traumatic situations, like the closer you're going to get because you have to trust each other. You have to be, mm. you have to know it's the safe space. All of you are coming together to create this safety net and the audience too, to what you were saying earlier, the audience is a character in the show too. You're talking yeah. with it. And so the audience walks out feeling exactly that. So yeah. I think it's just, it's so brilliantly done. But there's three questions I ask everybody to wrap up the episodes. The first one, just very simply, is what motivates you? We have one life. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Go for your dreams. Be kind. Help others. You know, spread the love. Lead with love. But, but all that is connected to we have one life. What are you going to do with it? No matter what I'm going through, I w- no matter what I'm going through, I wake up and I always try to, I've, I've gotten into this practice to, do sort of a little meditation prayer on um, no matter what 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 is ailing me or troubling me. I always just just think about and, and you know, the gratitude of all the all the all the beauty that I've been given. Hmm. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now, starting out down a similar path? Um, don't stress so much. <laughs> um, day by day enjoy the journey. It's not about, I got to get there. I got to get on TV or I got to get on Broadway and enjoy acting. Uh, enjoy looking for work. Um, and try not to, to beat yourself up so much. Um, <laughs> one foot in front of the other. There you go. All right. Last question. Hardest one. If you can only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Uh, you're talking about, uh, a play, a, a, a Broadway show, a theater show, or a movie or a TV? What are you saying? Well, first thing that comes to mind for theater, Broadway play, whatever. But if you want, if you have a movie too, you can throw that out. If I could say one, 
one story for the rest of my life? Yeah. I don't know why Cabaret keeps coming to mind. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a movie you would want to watch over and over again? I don't know. Um, maybe Breaking Bad as a series because mm. every aspect of that, sort of like every, every edit, every sound cue, every acting choice, every word um, is perfect. It's a perfectly designed, executed piece of television. So that, I, I could watch that over and over again, I guess. But just as a craft of it all, of all, all aspects of the television making. Well, plus, like the acting in that, again, just everything about that. I agree with you. I agree with you. That is one of the best, the best series ever. So where can we find you on social media? Uh, it's my name, uh, Adamir Arison, A-M-I-R-A-R-I-S-O-N. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, TikTok, which is sort of silly, but it's, it's what the kids are doing these days. Um, Twitter, all of it's at Amir Arison. Um, I have a YouTube channel that I've been active on now because I've been busy. It's, all of it's uh, Amir Arison, A-M-I-R-A-R-I-S-O-N. Well, you can get more of me at thetheaterpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok and Instagram. Find me, leave ratings, reviews, edited by Will Run at Hudlin Productions, music by Jukebox, The Ghost, and Amir. Thank you so much. This has been a really, really cool conversation. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Come again. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.